Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Michael, one of the pastors here at Salt. Great to see you here this morning. I hope you've had uh, a good week. I've had a great week. Uh, We're at the FIC conference this week. Uh, So Fellowship Independent Evangelical Churches, the network of churches we're part of. Up at Stamble Tops, uh, 55 churches across Australia, nearly 300 people up there with the staff team, some people here from Salt. Really encouraging, spurring one another on, haven't done it for three years. Praise God for our network of churches. Uh, I'm going to thank God for them now. Uh, It's a tremendous gift from God. And I'm also going to ask God to help us as we look at Acts chapter 15. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you that one of your great gifts to us is gathering as your people. Uh, We only do that because Jesus has made it possible. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have gathered a people uh, by through his death and his resurrection, by your spirit, drawn us into fellowship with one another uh, here at Salt, but also across the churches. Thanks for that encouragement. Lord, please now speak to us by your spirit. Help us to hear, help us to understand, help us to respond, help us to see Jesus for who he is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's passage raises the issue of Christians disputing, Christians arguing with each other, Christians debating, Christians in conflict. Now, uh, as you hear that, you'll, you'll probably react in different ways. Uh, I reckon Christians arguing with one another is not actually that popular these days, and maybe you're really thankful for that. Um, seeing Christian leaders battle out for truth, I don't think is something we necessarily do that much or that we're that happy to see happen. And I've been reflecting why are we uncomfortable with disputes. I reckon there's a few reasons. Uh, let me give you three quick ones. Uh, one is, uh, like anything w- that we come to the Bible, we bring ourselves to the Bible, right? Uh, and so we've got our own sensitivities about conflict, about disputes. Maybe that comes from our family. Uh, you might have come from a family where you really didn't air those discussions, those debates, that you didn't disagree with each other very much. Others of us, the dining table was the, deba- the debating floor, and of course, there are real, there's some real sensitivities in there when it gets to people raising their voice and violence within the home. We're really sensitive towards disagreeing. That can really trigger us. Um, are you the lion that shouts out in conflict or are you the turtle that puts uh, your head in uh, when conflict's happening? All those things are going on for us. Secondly, I reckon we prize unity as Christians, which is a good thing, but we've got, uh, sometimes we've got a wrong view of what unity looks like, so we'll talk about that today. But there's all kinds of historical reasons as to why we're a bit uncomfortable about disagreeing. Um, Centuries of bloodshed, uh, even the last hundred years, two world wars, I think says to us psychologically, is it actually worth it? Is it right to disagree, to go into battle of ideas as Christians? Uh, Throughout the centuries, 
So many lives have been lost, so much blood has been spilt in the name of Jesus. Is that right? And so we've got to the point now where we're actually more apathetic. We're more happy to say, you, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. It's okay. Truth has become relative. It's called postmodernism, isn't it? So a huge challenge for us today, wherever you're at, uh, are you never disagreeing with anyone or are you always ready to pick a fight? I think you, you, wherever you are, we're going to be challenged. And it's interesting to think about history. We haven't always had a distaste for Christian disputing, right? Um, so if you talk, perhaps maybe you're aware of this or your parents or grandparents, Catholics and Protestants, even in Australia, used to go hammer and tong, uh, even across families with, yeah, about the differences. They used to debate quite openly in Australian culture. Of course, throughout history as well, church doc- doctrine has been forged by disputes, by councils that have actually been set up to work out what is true, where are the dividing lines. It's been very helpful. And even as a wider community, I don't think we're always against disputing, always against arguing. Uh, Think about our parliament, for example. It's actually set up to debate, isn't it? It's got two two sides of the parliament. It's often done really poorly, um, when, when election time comes, what are, we, what are we interested in? We're interested in what is the Prime Minister saying? What is the opposition saying? Uh, we, we tune in at that point to a debate to hear the issues battled out. A few years ago, we uh, had a f- quite a fierce debate about same-sex marriage. Uh, we've had debates in the past about Australia becoming a republic. Really lively debate. Uh, For years we've been debating, disputing over global warming. Uh, Which way are we going to go with that? We're actually really happy to have those kind of debates. Why are we happy to have those debates? Isn't it because the consequences are so serious? It actually really matters. We actually really care. The stakes are so high, it's worth debating. And so we debate it out. Think about global warming, if it's if it's true that we're contributing to global warming uh, and we're not doing something about it, that's, that's a really bad thing. That has consequences. If we do do something about it, that's very costly. Um, that has a cost to it as well. I think about whether we're a republic or not. Cutting ourselves off from the queen or now the, the king is a big deal. Um, by the way, what a, what a wonderful woman Queen Elizabeth was, Yeah. Amy mentioned in her prayers, which is lovely. You don't need to be a monarchist, do you, to realise there's a woman that seemed to be of genuine Christian faith. Uh, people you know, from all different spectrums across the, the globe are saying she put the people first. Um, she served her country over decades. I think there's, there's an example of Christian leadership, isn't there? Um, same-sex marriage was massive because that's going to change the shape of families for generations to come. What is marriage? What is family? What, is, what does it mean to treat people equally? And of course, who our national leader is. Hugely significant, so let's debate it. But turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I have it open uh, in front of you. Because here is a very confronting chapter of the Bible. Here is a massive dispute that's going on. Here is a huge debate, a Donnybrook in the life of the early church. Um, 
And if you've been following uh, Acts, the unstoppable, we call it the unstoppable series, uh, here is a potential massive threat to the unstoppable good news of Jesus going out to the ends of the earth. In fact, I don't know whether you notice this, but this dispute is so big in this chapter, so significant, did you notice that the key Christian leaders at the time and many of the evangelists and many of the workers and part of Paul's team take themselves off the mission field to get this settled? That's how important it is. I reckon we're looking at one of the most important debates in the history of the world uh, and that it happened is massively significant for us. It has brought us life, it's brought us the gospel and without it we would not have life. So let me, let me take you through it in three parts. The fact of the dispute, the nature of the dispute and then the resolution of the dispute. So three parts. The first one, the fact of the dispute... So where are we? Paul and Barnabas, they're on their um, mission trip, their Mediterranean Sea loop on mission. Um, There's a a map here. They've returned to Antioch in Syria, so top of that red circle that I've I've highlighted there. And the action in, in Acts 15 happens between Antioch at the top and Jerusalem at the bottom in that red circle. That's where we are. Um, So they've finished, they've kind of finished the loop in Antioch. They'll head down to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch, to the church there. And Luke reports they head, I don't know whether you notice this, they head up to Jerusalem, uh, which kind of seems strange, doesn't it? Because Antioch is at the top. Um, So isn't Antioch up? Uh, We think of up is north, down is south. Um, So, you know, I take it from Wollongong, you go up to Sydney, yeah? You go down to Kiama. Unless you think Wollongong is at the centre, which you do, right? And so you go, you should be saying, you go down to Sydney and you go down to Kiama. In fact, everywhere from Wollongong is, is down. Okay, just think about it that way. Because that's how they thought of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city, the centre, the city of David. It's where Jesus died. It's full of significance. And so you go from Antioch up to Jerusalem. You come from Jerusalem, Judea, and you go down to Antioch, even though it's north. Now, down in Antioch, have a look, top of the map, a dispute breaks out, and what's the dispute about? Have a look in verse 1. Luke tells us, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Get that? You cannot be saved. Uh, What happens? Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So what's happening? Paul and Barnabas hear this. They're not letting this go. They're not saying, it's all good. You go your way, we'll go ours. You believe what you want to believe, we'll believe. Their ears have pricked up. Hang on a minute. This is really significant. They're engaging with these guys. They're debating these guys. They're disputing with these guys. And notice too, the church is supporting them. And the church is not frowning on them. The church is not saying to the leaders, you guys need to stop it. The church actually sends them with other believers up to Jerusalem to do what? To pursue this debate, to seek the counsel of the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem and get this matter settled. And so what happens? They 
They do head up to Jerusalem and they get to Jerusalem and the church there welcomes them. Uh, They're welcomed by the apostles and the elders there. They share the news of how God has saved Gentiles, non-Jews. People are pleased with that news. And then verse 6, the apostles and the elders meet to expressly consider the question at hand. Now, it's worth pausing there for a moment just to think, what's just happened? It's really significant, isn't it? We've been talking about this unstoppable mission and here are the evangelists, here are the apostles, here are the workers who've come off the mission field to deal with a really, really significant dispute. I reckon it's something here really key for us. There is a time to debate. There is a time to dispute. Uh, There's a kind of dispute that's modelled, I think, by us here, by the apostles, that's right, that's good and is critical. Now, it is true, we do need to be careful uh, about disputes, right? Um, So before we go too hard on being getting involved in a dispute, um, hear the warning from the Bible. The the Bible warns us not to be argumentative, uh, not to be a quarrelsome person. But I take it there's a spectrum, and you'll find yourself on this spectrum, there's the argumentative person, you know, the person who's always looking for a fight, the nitpicking person, uh, you know, that's where, the, that's where the headspace is. The other end of the, the spectrum is the person who never disagrees with anyone, always wants to keep the peace, who actually thinks it's perhaps wrong to disagree, Um, That's not in the name of Christian unity, it's unchristian. And I want to say both ends of those spectrum are wrong. Both ends of the spectrum are to be avoided. On one end, we're we're warned not to be quarrelsome, don't be that person. But at the same time, you cannot live for Jesus and agree with everyone. That won't work. And Acts 15, I think, teaches us that disputing is not necessarily wrong. Think about the rest of the New Testament for a moment with me. Most of the letters of the New Testament are written in opposition to something, aren't they? Uh, Countering an error. Uh, If the apostles never disagreed with anyone, I reckon most of the New Testament wouldn't have been written. In fact, 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, your job for the good of everyone, for the love of Jesus, listen to this, is to command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. That would be really good if you could do that, Timothy. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, history. So the Reformation, when, when brave men stood up and said to the Pope, to the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, you are wrong, we're going with the authority of the Bible, that would never have happened if they believed you had to agree with everyone, you could never dispute. So two extremes to be aware of. And there's a lot of room in the middle, isn't there, for wisdom, room for differences between Christians, I take it. And and you'll notice this tension in your life. Are you the kind of person that argues the point on everything, arguing too much? Or do you hardly argue at all? You don't argue enough. You see it in the the wider church more broadly, don't you? Uh, Parts, sections of the church, the wider church, people, churches... Uh, who want to split hairs over every doctrine and divide uh, against everyone, 
and then people who, or churches who want to accept everyone and every teaching as if that's what it means to be Christian. And I reckon as you work out the middle ground, here's what I reckon's going on. I reckon there's two conflicting values going on for you. One is peace, keeping the peace, maybe keeping relationships, and the other one is truth. And so what needs to happen is the issue needs to be important enough for you to upset the peace. Isn't that right? Uh, To risk relationship. It actually needs to really matter to you. Are you happy to keep the peace? But there'll become a tipping point where you say, no, no, this matters so much. Uh, I know you're not going to like this, but I need to say this. I need to disagree. And of course, you need to pick that thing carefully. But it's happening in all of life. It's not, not just amongst Christians, not just about amongst what we believe. Uh, I think that's the nature of things. So why is this debate so important? Uh, let's think about the nature of the dispute. The nature of this dispute couldn't be more significant. Uh, it's how someone is saved. Uh, who is it that's going to be excluded from heaven? You think to yourself, could there be anything more important, anything more worthy to dispute over, to argue, to make clear? And that is, some are saying, to get to heaven, you need to trust Jesus and you need to be circumcised. Uh, If you're not a Jew, if you're a Gentile, you need to become a Jew first, uh, trust Jesus and keep the law. Uh, God will only accept you, they're saying, if you trust Jesus and, at the same time, keep the law of Moses. And notice, this, this is happening within the early church. Uh, these are people who uh, are not rejecting Jesus, they're not against Jesus, they're following Jesus, presumably they love Jesus, they recognise him. But they've missed something profound about Jesus, have they not? And you might be thinking to yourself, how could they possibly miss this, but they did miss it? When it comes to to Jesus, he's introduced a new way to relate to God. Uh, Not through the law, but through him. Uh, He said, all of the law is fulfilled in me. Uh, The New Testament teaches what the law was powerless to do. You'd never be righteous through the law. Now you can be righteous, right with God through Jesus by trusting him. It's actually Jesus who achieves this. His life, his death, his resurrection means we can now be right with God. Uh, Jesus brings in a new covenant, a new agreement between us and God. And now all those who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, all, everyone who does that, will be forgiven. There's the new message. And it's very hard, it was very, very hard for the Jewish Christians to accept this as they wrestled with what does that mean for the law of Moses? It's not that God's character has changed. God has always acted in grace and mercy, but he did it through the law. Uh, He always offered forgiveness, but it was through the temple priest and the temple sacrifices outlined in the law. Now grace and mercy and forgiveness comes in the person of Jesus. He is the great priest whose once for all sacrifice satisfies God's anger pays for sin completely. And so there's a number of ways that Jesus tries to communicate this, isn't it? Do you remember the, 
the story of the two men uh, outside the temple, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who looks up to God and wants God to be impressed with him because he's obeyed the law. Uh, he feels that he's a righteous man. And then the tax collector who's already looked down on by society looks up and, and knows how rotten he is, how sinful he is, can't even look up to God but ask God to have mercy on him. And the, the question is, which one goes home right with God? If you don't understand Jesus and what he's done at the cross, you would say this, right, this, this man who appears righteous, who keeps the law, who's Jewish... But it's the man who looks up and says, I'm not worthy, I need to be forgiven. I need Jesus. And it's, this, it's Jesus' title, isn't it? The saviour, the one who came to seek and save the lost. Uh, not the one who comes to help us become better people. Um, I heard it expressed this way. Um, not the coach who's coaching us to pick up our game. That's not what Jesus came for. He came to save us. It's the image of the thief on the cross, isn't it? Think about the thief on the cross who turns to Jesus and, and recognises him as king, leans on him as saviour, turns to Jesus at his last moments and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. I recognise you as the king. You're bringing in a kingdom. I need you. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he's done nothing. He's a terrible man. He's a criminal. But you know, even... Um, parts of church and church history have, many people have struggled with that man's salvation. How can he be saved? He wasn't Jewish, he wasn't good, he didn't keep the law, he didn't get baptised, he didn't go to church. I even learnt this week that there are certain Christian traditions that recognise him as the good thief. And it misses the point, doesn't it? He was perhaps wise, he's certainly grateful, he's repentant, but how could you call him good? He's not good, he's a criminal, that's why he's there. Jesus came for sinners like him and like us. In fact, he made the church, you could say a hospital, for sinners, saved people. And so what did the reformers, 16th century reformers say? They said, you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, by God's sheer kindness is the only way. Now, Paul knows this is so important, so central, so much at stake. The church knows that. Um, and so what do they do? They send Paul and Barnabas and believers up to Jerusalem to settle it. Um, but before we get there, did you know that Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia. The book of Galatians was actually written at this point. As Paul's thinking these things over, uh, as he's realising, I've just visited Christian brothers and sisters who I left uh, solid in Jesus, you know, that you're, you're forgiven only in him. Now I'm hearing people are saying to them, you need to keep the law. That you're not, it's not just Jesus alone, it's Jesus plus the law plus circumcision, he's really concerned. And so he writes to the Galatians and he comes out firing. Have a listen to these quotes. Galatians 1, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are now turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. You couldn't, he, he couldn't be harder words, could it? So important to get this right. So much at stake. You cannot distort this gospel. It will become no gospel at all. If you do that, you should be eternally condemned. Well, look at Galatians 2 up on the screen. I did not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If someone says, you must obey the law of God, you can actually get to God that way, then Christ did it for nothing. He died in our place for nothing. Or Galatians chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? It really goes to town on them. How can you get this wrong? I told you it was in Christ alone that you lack nothing and now you want to be persuaded by this idea that you need to obey the law. How can that be? Here's something I've, I've uh, I learned a long time ago and I found really helpful. It's, it's called Gospel Maths. Have a look at this. Faith in Jesus equals salvation. Yeah, uh, it's, the, it's by God's grace. It's only in Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. Uh, that's, the, that's what we sing about. That's what we know. I was lost, now I'm found. It's amazing grace. It's all of those. Um, Faith in Jesus equals salvation. But here's another equation. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision equals nothing. Equals nothing. Uh, Once you add circumcision to the requirement to be saved, you're no longer trusting in Jesus. Uh, You're trusting in your own ability to keep the law. That is not salvation. In fact, have a look at this equation. Faith in Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Once you try to add anything to the work of Jesus, you actually take away from the work of Jesus. You deny the gospel. I was talking to a friend about this this week and he, and he said, isn't it interesting that this issue was fought so hard for here in Acts 15? It was no doubt fought for on countless occasions throughout history. It was definitely fought for in the 16th century Reformation and even today, we've got to keep fighting for it because people want to slip in. It can't just be Jesus, Kenneth. Jesus surely can't be enough. Surely you need to be or you need to do. Surely you need to be good enough. Surely you need to be baptised. Paul's saying, no, no way. Baptism is wonderful. Baptism is a gift. Baptism is about publicly symbolising the faith that you have in Christ and what Jesus has done for you. But don't add that. That is, that'll make salvation nothing. And so I reckon it's a great warning to us, isn't it? Watch out for anyone who says, yeah, yeah, you've got to have faith in Jesus, but you've also got to, and listen for what comes next. Because if they're trying to add to Jesus, they're actually preaching a false gospel. If they say you must, then you mustn't. Such that Jesus would be Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone. 
Well, how do they resolve this dispute? The third thing, uh, what happens? Verse 6, Peter uh, stands up uh, and addresses the crowd. Look at, look at verse 6. He makes three, three points, three quick points here. Um, first thing he says is, remember Cornelius. Remember that a Gent- the Gentiles have already been saved. Remember Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 7. Brothers, you know that some time ago, uh, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. You saw it. It's part of our mission. Jesus has put the Spirit of God in them as they trusted Jesus They weren't Jews, Cornelius, his family, many others. And so verse 9, second point, both Jew and Gentile are only acceptable to God through faith in Jesus. It is only through faith in Jesus that the Jew is saved and the Gentile, the non-Jew, is saved. Verse 9, God did not discriminate between, between Jew and Gentile, for he purified the hearts by faith. Sorry, he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? And lastly, salvation is by grace, by grace alone, by God's kindness alone. Verse 11, no, he says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So keeping the law is not a requirement it's all about grace. It's all about God's undeserved generosity towards us. And so they come to a decision. And it's actually uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who, who stands up. It's like he's the lead pastor, it seems, of the Jerusalem church. Uh, and he's, he says to them, uh, he actually quotes Amos. And he actually says, look, it's, it's been God's plan from the beginning that the Gentiles be saved. You shouldn't have been surprised at this. And then listen to what he says. Here's the big judgment, the, the end product of everything. Verse 19, uh, up on the screen. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so what's the upshot? You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. You don't have to obey the law of Moses to be a Christian. The matter is settled. And so James writes a letter to welcome the uh, Gentile believers Assure them of God's grace, God's kindness. You're saved by Jesus alone. You're, you're part of the true church. Don't be ruffled by these uh, Judaizers, these opponents of Jesus. Uh, now continue in the faith and here's four things for you to do. Before we look at those four things, because they've puzzled Christians down the centuries, uh, before we finish on that, I want to just point out four critical things from Acts chapter 15 very briefly. Let me run them through. Uh, First one is grace. You are saved by grace. You must get this. You must enjoy this. You must centre on this. So important. Uh, And even on a personal note, um, have you heard this for yourself? Or have you laid yourself up with a burden that you'll never ever be able to uh, attain to? Have you realised God accepts you because of Jesus and his death and resurrection for you. Not because of what you've done uh, in the past, not because of what you need to do, not because of a performance you need to make. Uh, It is by grace, it's by God's kindness. Let that settle in your hearts, enjoy that, 
uh, be free to enjoy God, be thankful, serve him. Uh, it doesn't sound fair, but it is fair, it is just, because Jesus paid for us at the cross. So that's grace. Second thing, hopefully you've seen this morning, that doctrine matters, what you believe matters. Um, sometimes as Christians we can downplay this. Um, sometimes we can say, isn't it just important enough that we just love Jesus, we be sincere? And I reckon this chapter says actually loving Jesus is not enough. Um, what is the missing piece for those who are arguing with Paul? They, they needed to receive Jesus as saviour, didn't they? They didn't get that Jesus came to die for sins. They didn't trust him as their saviour. Um, and so what you believe about Jesus is critically important. Uh, who you say he is, what he's done, couldn't be more important. And of course, there's lots of things you can dispute about. And you need to work out what is, the, what is the thing. There is some critical things, isn't there? There's some crucial doctrine that you're going to be in a bad place if you don't believe this. Uh, you won't be saved if you don't believe this. And then maybe you'd push back and say, well, hang on a minute, how about my feelings? How about my relationship with God? But it actually all flows out from what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus. Your heart, your feelings flow from what you think, what you believe. Even, even in this, as we think about being saved by grace alone, if you believe that you are saved by what you do, uh, that is going to profoundly change the way you think and feel about God, isn't it? I reckon it's going to profoundly change the way you think about other people. You'll always be looking down on other people. Uh, you'll, you'll always think that you're not good enough. You'll be proud, perhaps, and arrogant that you've made it or maybe defeated. But if you believe that you are saved by God's kindness and only by God's kindness, how humble does that make us? How much of a level playing field is that? How incredibly grateful does that make you feel? It has a huge impact on who we are as people, what we believe. Thirdly, Notice the gospel is for everyone that comes out of this, doesn't it? Beware of your prejudices. Don't add to the gospel, even unknowingly. Don't put something in the way of Jesus alone, grace alone, faith alone. Don't give anyone the impression that you need to be like this or you need to do this in order to be saved. Um, keep it centred on Jesus and rescued by him. And lastly, unity I reckon this passage says a lot to us about unity. Uh, good to strive for, good to be a peacemaker. Ephesians 4 says, keep the unity of the spirit. Uh, God is the God of unity. But remember this, God is the God of unity and a unity based on truth because God is the God of truth. Um, that means you won't always agree with everyone. You won't always be unified with everyone, even everyone who says they follow Jesus, love Jesus. Uh, there will be times where you'll need to disagree. There will be times when you realise, actually, we're not on the same page, we're not even on the same mission, and that's okay, I can still respect you. Uh, but understand unity based on truth. Now, what are the, lastly, what are the four instructions to the Gentiles? Stick with me, look at verse 20. He says we should write to them, they're going to welcome them, 
but also going to tell them abstain from food polluted by idols, um, abstain from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Now, it's really fascinating. Why does James come up with these four things? I don't think they're the four things that you would say to a new believer today. Uh, I don't think he's coming up with a new law. I don't think he's saying, he can't be saying, trust in Jesus, that's great, but now you need to do this. That would be against everything he said in the chapter. And so I've really wrestled with this. So I reckon it's two, two ideas. One is something you'd say to anyone who's become a Christian. Turn from idols, flee sexual immorality. That's, what a, that's a part of becoming a Christian, that you'd put your old life behind you. You'd turn away from worthless things. We saw that last week. You turn to the living God to actually change your uh, ethics, um, leave sexual immorality behind. But I reckon the other thing is, he's saying here, the other category is don't do anything that will cause your fellow Christians to stumble. Because now you don't live for yourself. It's not about your rights and what you can do. It's actually about what would be helpful to your Christian brothers and sisters. Here are the Gentile Christians who could easily offend Jewish brothers and sisters. Here is a place where the church could get divided. Uh, Here's a place where it could get awkward as you show hospitality to the Jewish brothers and sisters and vice versa and share a meal. Um, So Paul's saying, uh, here are some some things that would be really helpful as we keep unity, fellowship, uh, within one church, Jew and Gentile. So there it is. Acts chapter 15, massive landmark debate, yeah? Uh, Uncomfortable, uh, tense, but good. Uh, Here the gospel by grace, by uh, by sheer grace, by God's kindness, is affirmed, is protected. Uh, Here is faith alone, Jesus alone, one way to be saved. Um, Again, affirmed and protected. And so good, isn't it, that the apostles fought for this? Praise God that they did. So many people misunderstand this. So many people don't get this, that Jesus, in Jesus there is profound forgiveness and hope and life and only in him they try to add to it and miss out on heaven. Let us keep believing this. Let us keep defending this. Do it wisely and carefully, uh, but let's keep doing it. And let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, as we... Uh, look this morning at your unstoppable mission that could have stopped here in Acts chapter 15. Thank you that in your kindness and and, uh, your great strength by your spirit, you wisely helped leaders affirm the Christian faith, the gospel of grace. Um, Father, please uh, keep us humble as we believe this doctrine. Uh, as we keep trusting in Jesus alone, knowing that salvation only comes through him and uh, not through us. Uh, Father, protect this gospel, keep this gospel so that many people might be saved. Help us to affirm it, to believe it, to uh, even in love and wisdom uh, dispute over it um, so that many more might come and find hope and life in Jesus alone. Amen.